This is Decoding Security, a podcast from Microsoft Australia about how to protect your business from the ever-changing threat of cybercrime. On the show, you'll hear from leaders in cybersecurity as well as Microsoft experts as we break down strategies to help keep your business secure. I'm your host, Mark Anderson, and I'm the Chief Security Officer here at Microsoft Australia. In today's episode, I'm joined by two experts in the field of cybersecurity incident response. First of all, we have Jessica Hunter. Jess is the head of the ACSC Cybersecurity Services Division and is a 17-year veteran in the Australian intelligence and security community. I'm also joined by Frank Santucci, the co-founder and CTO of Paraflare, a Microsoft managed detection and response security services provider. In today's episode, we'll explore some of the basics when it comes to cybersecurity incident response. You'll hear how the world of cybersecurity has changed and we'll share some good news stories from the world of cybersecurity. All right, let's get into the conversation. Let's get started on this conversation today. Back in October, we released the Microsoft Digital Defense Report for 2021. This Digital Defense Report is our view of the global state of cyber. And if I cut straight to the chase, the report tells us that cybersecurity incidents are both increasing in intensity and volume. And moreover, adversaries are adapting their techniques and tactics to adapt to the new defenses that we as defenders are putting up there. However, sadly, we also see that many of the attacks that are successful are mainly due to a lack of basic cybersecurity hygiene in the target environment. Moreover, this volume and intensity of attacks is becoming a challenge for organizations, especially those that don't have a dedicated cybersecurity function. And for those that are yet to deal with a cybersecurity incident, I would say count yourself lucky because you're definitely on borrowed time. It's not a question of if you're going to get breached, it's a question of when. In addition, if you don't have the right monitoring and detections in place, you could already be a victim and not know it. And this is exactly what we look to address through this new series of the Digital Defenders webinar. Regardless of whether you are a seasoned incident response professional or here to learn how to get started, I'm sure you're going to take something away from the rest of this series. To kick this off, given the slightly grim picture that I just painted about the cybersecurity landscape and the way it's changed, I want to start by talking about how has the world of cyber incident response changed and adapted to this new battlefield? Jess, I'd like to start with you on this one. You have many years of experience in the world of IR. I'm keen to start with you and hear about what do you think the trends and things that have changed over the past few years or maybe even over the past decade or so? Thanks, Mark. I think to best answer that question, I should provide you a little bit of context around what I see as the threat environment and what has deteriorated currently, as opposed to the 10 years ago, which will then help explain why I think incident response has shifted over the decade I've been working at. So the Australian Cybersecurity Centre has recently released our annual threat report, which is where we've really highlighted some of those trends and changes in the adversaries' approaches and the type of activity that they undertake to gain access to data. So some quite alarming statistics in that threat environment. We've really seen a shift in more disruptive and destructive types of malicious activities with a 15% increase in ransomware attacks in the Australia community. 
We've also seen an increase in the number of incidents targeted at critical infrastructure providers, with a 14% of our incidents currently reported to the sensor through self-reports directly on that critical infrastructure and essential services sector, which is a significant shift from what I would have said 10 years ago, which was much more heavily focused on government and large bank and financial institutions. We've also seen a shift in cyber criminal activity and syndicate breakouts of cyber criminal actors where you don't have to be sophisticated to gain successful footholds in networks with around 1,500 cybersecurity reports to the ACSC in the last month alone. And that is an increase of one report in eight minutes to the ACSC versus one report in 10. Probably the most stark shift in the threat environment which has impacted incident response is actually the public nature of those incidents and the financial cost to businesses and governments. So we've, from self-reported information to the Cyber Centre, we estimate it's around 33 billion Australian dollars that has been lost to cyber criminals in particular. So that really changes the dynamic of response and shifts it from a technical activity to a whole of enterprise activity for a business or community. So if I look back at 10 years ago when I was doing incident response at a national level, a lot of those incidents were often sophisticated state-sponsored actors gaining a foothold into a network. And frankly, they were in those networks in a very stealth and quiet approach and sometimes for two to three years because there wasn't excellent visibility of the actor's initial attack vector to gain access and limited visibility of understanding how they'd moved laterally in the network. So the discovery as well as the remediation took several months in those instances and the resilience and ability for those entities to recover was quite lengthy at times. And the solution often was to rebuild the network from scratch in order to truly eradicate the actor. Shift forward 10 years to today, a plethora of different apps that are being created without the same level of oversight and sophistication. So a lot more of an attack surface to gain access. And we also now see individuals being attacked from their specific devices and handsets rather than solely network level activity. But what we see from the adversary is quickly into networks, quick opportunistic, looking at public vulnerabilities and scanning for those, and then being quite disruptive. That might be encrypting files on networks that you can see very quickly that they're in your network. That might be hack and leak, pulling PII data and releasing on the dark web for ransom. So those instances of attack actually lend themselves to be much more public. Ten years ago, I would brief CEOs and ask them to have a media plan, but say they've probably got two to three weeks to manage that media plan. Now I brief CEOs and say the first and foremost thing that they need to think about is their media plan and also their customer engagement plan, how they'll notify their end users in that process. So a really big shift in the activity of the actors, but also the cybersecurity response elements much greater visibility now to what we previously had in terms of tools and capabilities. But because of that public nature, for me, from the cyber centre, it's very much a whole of enterprise risk response activity, which requires a whole of enterprise pre-planning and a full plan on how to manage your incident response. So those are the biggest shifts I've probably seen in the last 10 years, Mark. Yeah, no, that's excellent. There's a couple of points I wanted to pick up on there. The key one is, when we have those timelines of an actor being in your environment for years upon years, the question is like, how do you know where they are or where have they been? And that's the key point. You know, if we say we're only keeping logs for three months and so forth, we have no idea. And sometimes you get to the point where the only way to truly eradicate them is to burn down the entire network and start again, which 
for some organizations, that's practically impossible in the sheer size and scale. It's really disruptive to business. But the second point I want to pick up on there, I'm in the same boat as you, I think. Over the past 12 months, the amount of times I've been brought in to have board level briefing conversations about cyber has rapidly or massively increased. And I think that's because now people are seeing cyber incidents make it to the front page of a newspaper, right? And we're talking now not just about the issue for the geeks in IT, it's actual brand and reputational damage to the organization that now starts to affect your stock price. People on the board are going to start to get worried. So completely and utterly concur with that. Frank, same question to you. You're in the position of running a managed service provider. What are you seeing in terms of changes in trends? Thanks, Mark. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. And I guess I'll amplify some of the points that Jess made because I think they were excellent. I think what we're all seeing overall, I guess, is an increase in activity across the board. And what's really alarming is the professionalism of the adversaries. And I really think this is driven by the money that's flowing through to them. They are far more systematic than they were two or three years ago. There's a real understanding and a machine learning in the way that they're operating. We know that cybercrime now has surpassed narcotics as the number one source of revenue for organised crime. And that is really professionalising their organisations. And it's really getting alarming in the way that they're operating. If we look at some of the trends that are happening, at least since 2018, we've seen about a 20% uptick in the targeting of financial services, which was interesting, which had tapered to some point. And we think financial services have done such a good job at defending themselves. They had managed to push the adversaries back somewhat, but the trend has turned back the other way. We are seeing a slight reduction in internal perpetrators during and post-COVID, but that's been offset by an increase in external attackers. What's really obvious to the industry is the phishing that just continues to raise, a 12% increase year on year. But the real obvious one, which I think Jess brought up, is ransomware. We do see it a lot. And I want to change the tact a little bit because a lot of people think it's all ransomware now and we're sort of focused on it. The reality is that all the other attacks that had happened previously still exist. And they still exist in the quantity that were happening. We're still seeing web shells. We're still seeing credential theft. We're still seeing all sorts of those standard attacks. What I would argue is that organised crime, to some extent, as well as nation states, have opened up a new line of business. So ransomware is happening above and beyond what was already there. So please don't focus too much on ransomware. It's something to worry about, but we still need to do all of our basics really well. Another point is the reduction in dwell time. And I know Jess touched on this somewhat. If you'd gone back three years ago, we talked about dwell time, which is the amount of time someone sits in a network before they're detected. Previously, it was about north of 100 days, and that's really come down steeply, and particularly in the APAC region. FireEye, who probably has the best data set on this, are sort of saying sub-50 days at the moment in APAC, so the amount of time that people are in the network. And this has been driven by a few things. I think we've got a more advanced ability to detect them. I think that they're more systematic in the way they're attacking. So once they're in the network, they're being able to reap the rewards quicker. And that's probably two of the major data points. But the third driving it tends to be ransomware is that ransomware really is a smash and grab activity and that once they're executing ransomware, so that is bringing the dwell time down. But that doesn't stop those nation states seizing and holding ground and sitting in there for those one, two, three thousand days sometimes, which is quite concerning. And I guess the final point I'll bring up is, you know, amplifying one of Jess's comments around the essential eight modifications that are being made around the speed of which vulnerabilities are being exploited. We're seeing this a lot. We are sure, and I won't name vendors, is that once a vulnerability is disclosed with something quite public facing, like a VPN, very quickly, we know within one to two weeks that we will be receiving incident responses for that vulnerability being exploited. So you really need to be on your toes when you're seeing the SEV 8, 9 and 10, severity 8, 9 and 10 vulnerabilities coming out, being able to patch them and close those windows. They're the sort of major things that I'm seeing. That's excellent. 
And that point that you made earlier as well, I think is a really key one, which is, yes, ransomware may be the flavor of today. And a lot of people are just lasering in on the whole idea that ransomware is the only thing we need to fix and be cautious of, whereas really we should be going, well, we could fix ransomware or we could at least put some good mitigating controls in place if we actually zoom out a little bit and get that basic cyber hygiene left to right in place. And therefore, we're ready for when the next generation of whatever ransomware V2 is that comes along. So I think that's a really, really key point. I might just jump in on Frank's excellent comment in relation to the speed of needing to patch as a result of the adversary jumping on public vulnerabilities. That was one of the key findings that the ACSC identified over the last 12 months, shifting from days and weeks for the adversary to be able to scan and then exploit public vulnerabilities to one to two days. We've seen trends. And as a result of that, the ACSC updated our Essential 8 maturity model to reflect the need for patching in a much quicker timeframe, and particularly for those internet-facing devices to be patched within that 48-hour window. So a really good point, Frank, and I just wanted to amplify it because it's really part of that basic hygiene and ensuring that we're following the threat and the trends and then taking that internal action on our systems. That's a really good point. I'd like to now move on the conversation a little bit because throughout this webinar series, we're going to have experts deep diving into all the different areas of cyber incident response, everything from analyzing threats to containment and eradication, and finally the recovery and remediation. But before we get to those deep dive sessions, I'm really conscious of the fact that many of our viewers today will be at different stages in their cyber incident response capability. Some people may be experts in this area, but for many, they might not even have a cyber response capability. So let's pair it back a little bit and talk about what are the basic building blocks of building a good cyber response capability in your organization if you're just getting started. And Jess, I'll start with you on this question because I know you've probably built a few of these in your time. What do you think are the essential components from a people, tools, processes perspective in building a good IR capability? I have built a few security operations centers in the past most with very large screens revealing the incidents that are occurring on a daily basis. But I guess my first comments make on that is you don't need to have a security operations center to understand the security of your networks and respond to them. So that would be my first, particularly for smaller businesses and even medium-sized businesses. From what I've seen, the most successful way to handle incidents and manage the security of your network is actually having buy-in and knowledge from leadership. So the first is ensuring that from the CEO or the secretary down that there is finances to support the initiative and also an understanding in the organization of the importance of cybersecurity, not just as a technical issue. Probably the second is around knowing your network, knowing where and what your crown jewels are that you would want to protect, and then ensuring that you have visibility of those areas. If we're talking a wide, incredibly large, very flat network, not always being able to have visibility of that entire network if you're a business, for instance, but actually knowing this is the component of that network which I need to secure, and then that's where you need to maintain that visibility. And what that visibility looks like will differ depending on the size of your organization and your preference for tools. And I won't go into specific brands, but effectively having visibility internal to your network at the host level, but also probably at the network boundary will give you a different set of data points, which will then enable you to understand when vulnerabilities exist within your network and if an adversary did get in. 
The second part of visibility is really having a strong logging and backup capability. And again, that'll be dependent upon your own organization and also your agreements that you have with your managed service providers, for instance. So I really do encourage you to look at what SLAs you have in place in relation to storage of data and your ability to obtain that data again. And then probably the third is around skill sets. A lot of individuals in the community will say that you need cybersecurity skill sets. I will say the foundation is strong IT skill sets. Understanding your network is the critical component. And then you can build onto that with risk officers or individuals who understand cybersecurity on top of that. There are also a lot of cybersecurity firms which you could call upon if there is an incident, which is why not all entities need to have a cybersecurity strong skill set. And I appreciate that might be slightly contentious, but if I'm looking at smaller businesses who have businesses of three or four staff in that organization, they don't have the luxury of having a dedicated CISO or cybersecurity entity. So don't feel that that is essential, but understanding your network is critical in that space. So those are the three main ones, the leadership buy-in, that visibility, and then having a strong understanding of the IT foundation so that you can then continue to respond as needed. They're brilliant. And the first one, oh, sorry, the second one really got me thinking around when there was the exchange on-premises vulnerabilities earlier this year in 2021. There was a few organizations that were like, oh, no, it's okay. We've actually moved off to Office 365, so we don't have any exchange servers on-premises. And then all of somebody said, no, 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 we've actually kept this one behind for whether it was archiving or whatever it was, and it was tucked away in a cupboard. And nobody knew about it and it was sat there all vulnerable over in the corner. So that's a really key point about understanding what's truly in your landscape because you can't protect what you don't know about. Frank, same question to you, I guess, in terms of is there anything that Jess has said that you'd like to build on? Then I guess also for our more seasoned pros that are on the call today, once you've got all those basics in place that Jess alluded to, how do you mature that capability? What is next? Yeah, I think that's a fantastic question. And I might even just be drawn on uh, one point. I'm worried that the security leaders in the room blood pressure is sky high because they're thinking, well, how do I build a capability? I can't get more people to have a digital forensics capability. And I think in Australia, the reality is that DFIR tends to be an outsource, but that doesn't mean that you need to own the capability internally. So we all wear lots of hats in Australia. Our companies aren't that big. And the reality is laying that groundwork for digital forensics now before you're breached is really what's important. So it's about planning and partnering. Who is the controllers and who does what? Because let's face it, getting breached is a company changing moment. And if you start with that as a pretense and you look forward, having an IR plan and a real one that passes the real world test and testing that plan with the executives is really important. So understanding who you're going to engage, when and why, and sort of having that retainer in place, which I think is common. It's quite uncommon to have in-source digital forensics in my experience. I heard a CFO tell me only yesterday that if he's breached, he's just going to call someone then. Why would he have a retainer in place? And that is actually the opposite advice to what I would give outside of the fact that it's core services for us. But the reality is, I'll amplify Jess's point, is if you have an incident, so let's actually talked about maturing the capability. If you have an incident and someone attends to say, look, I'm going to help you resolve this incident, the first thing they're going to do is say, what's your visibility? Do you have the tooling? Do you have the centralized logging? Do you have the XDR agents as three really good examples? But if you don't, I can tell you sure as hell, they're going to turn around to you and they're going to say, we're going to start deploying these tools now. And that is a really uncomfortable thing to go back to your board, your shareholders, your executives, your customers to say, look, we don't know what's happened, but we're now putting in tooling in place. We're putting logging in place to actually be able to answer the questions that you want to know. And a final point I would say, I think PR, legal and customer engagement, having that practiced and rehearsed and understood up front 
the amount of times we turn up to an incident and we sort of say, you know, to Jess's point, this isn't just a technical undertaking. What's your customer engagement plan? What is your legal plan? What is your public relations? And don't ask us for our recommendations. We have them, but the horse is bolted at that stage. So just planning, planning, planning is my comment. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think a lot of people instantly think about incident response is the tool that you buy and then you build everything around the tools. Well, it's actually not. It's a lot wider than that, which I think is really key. With that, you're both really experienced in this area and I'm really keen to now talk about some real life stories. You've obviously been working in this area for some time. You've seen probably what we'll call the good and the bad. And if I was to quote a little piece of military wisdom here right now, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Or if you're into boxing, there was a great quote by Mike Tyson when he was interviewed by a reporter prior to his Evander Holyfield fight, where they said, Mike, are you worried about Evander's fight plan? And Mike said, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. If you transfer that over to the cyber world, we've been away. We've put all these policies and procedures in place. We've put all the tooling in place. But in the heat of the moment, when the pressure is on, when the adversary is doing something that's not in your playbook and your procedures are not going to plan, this is when the wheels start to come off and the mistakes get made. So I'm really keen now to just dig into some of those war stories and those lessons learned from your history of working in these spaces. And Frank, I want to start with you on that one. The worst case scenario tends to be the let's burn it down. We don't see that often, but I have seen a couple of cases in the last 18, 24 months where the cost to remediate, not just from the incident response, but also the IT remediation versus a, let's face it, a hard reset and literally new hardware, new software, new systems. I have seen happen a couple of times and it's quite unfortunate. And it tends to be where there's a tech debt. So people have really built up a technology debt to a certain point. And there's a certain size where you literally can't do that. We have seen advanced persistent threats where we think there is so much persistence in the network that the cost for us to keep going versus you going through a refresh, I would go with the refresh and we've done it. So that's sort of on the bad side. In terms of ugly, which is a flip coin to bad, we are seeing organisations not doing the right thing. Everyone knows that there is a obligation to report to the OIAC, but there seems to be this propensity and you see it a lot. I read with scepticism a lot of the announcements made post-breach and people want to be led to this idea that because we can't prove the data went missing, it didn't happen. And we sort of point to the fact that, look, there was a breach and two in the morning and eight terabytes of traffic went out your firewall. What was that? Well, you can't tell me what that is because we didn't have the tools in place. I don't I use the word negligence lightly, but I feel like the balance of truth is that they had lost data. And then we see them misleading, lying to their shareholders, customers. These are the ugly stories, which there's more than one, which I hear from the community. So yeah, and it really becomes an ethical dilemma dealing with these entities. Yeah, sure. If we didn't see it, it didn't happen type moment. But before we get to the good stories, Jess, I'm keen to hear, what are your war stories in that area of bad and ugly, I guess? I'll share three and I will ensure that the victim names are not revealed to protect the innocent. So the first goes to, I guess, my earlier point around IT literacy and Frank's point around if you do bring in an instant response company, they still need someone to talk to who knows the system, who can deploy those tools and knows what IT sits on the network. So the first one was around poor IT literacy. A great example of engaging with the ACSC and seeking our support. We then deployed our forensic analysts. And the first question we always ask, which is what we would ask at any incident, is what data holdings do you have? And we have a little list of things to ask for. Could we get some access to this? Could we pull down our tools or could we use your own? And one of those asks was to request an image of the server, which we were aware that the actor had traversed through. And we received a photograph of a server. 
<laughs> in response. And Excellent. and whilst it's a humorous story and it is mm-hmm. one that we all discuss in the Australian Cybersecurity Centre, it goes to yeah. the point of the importance of having some IT literacy because the ability for us to then help in a timely manner remove that actor from that network and then identify where else they were in the network was obviously hampered. And then the poor victim, unfortunately, because the IT staff didn't have that basic knowledge of cyber or IT the timeframe of which we were able to resolve, it was effectively blown out. So that's an example of the importance of that IT literacy and for entities to already have, as Frank has raised, visibility and an understanding of what data they have on their system. The second one goes to legacy systems and companies that take over other companies. So in this incident, we were engaged in providing national level support and quite a flat network, but it was a network which had a bolt-on network when there was a procurement made to that company. And effectively, what we identified was we had deployed our tools to the knowledge of what that network owner knew their devices, where they were, and what systems existed. But we actually identified a gap where during the takeover, there was network map and no system inventory. And as a result, there was a domain controller, which we say fell in the gap in that no one was monitoring it. And both companies after the merge thought the other company was monitoring it and had the right visibility tools and thought it was plugged into the seam. And that's actually the foothold of where the adversary got onto the DCs and then traversed the network changing passwords. A great example of probably the ugly in terms of network management and maintenance and then leaving them fairly exposed just because there was no inventory in place and fingers being pointed between companies. And then the third one is very topical in the current environment in relation to managed service providers, contracts, and cyber insurance. So wonderful victim who engaged us within hours of identifying that they had an adversary on the network and calling the 1300 Cyber One number. And when we gave our list of, could we receive your backups? How long do you keep your backups for? It turns out that that company had a service level agreement with one of their cloud providers where if they missed a payment by five days, the backups would be wiped from the cloud provider. And that service level agreement was in place for privacy, no doubt, in terms of they weren't continuing their business arrangement. And unfortunately, it had happened over a Christmas period and the payroll officer hadn't paid that invoice. So in essence, that entire backup system had been wiped by the provider. So that victim had no history, no ability to see, going to Frank's point, what had been exfiltrated, but more importantly, how the actor had traversed through the network. So that was a really interesting one for us to navigate. It wasn't that the victim wasn't able to, willing to share. It was unfortunately a contractual issue, which then impacted the technical aspects of it. And I'll throw in a fourth bonus one as well. And I think this one comes down to panic and a lack of senior level understanding of incidents where the ACSC was trying to offer a level of support, but the seniors effectively were not allowing the ACSC in to provide that level of support purely because they weren't familiar with our offering and that ours was a very consensual engagement and support to them. So as a result, two weeks took time before we were able to come in and help that victim. And they hadn't hired an incident response company either in that two week time period. Unfortunately for them, a significant amount of their data had leaked onto the dark web. And that goes to the discussion around ensuring that you have that whole of enterprise planning in place for disaster recovery and you know who to call, whether it's the national sensor or an incident response company and having that part of baked into your governance process. So those are my four slightly bad, slightly ugly 
incident response engagements. They, they are most certainly horror stories. I want to pick one with the first one because, you know, it was slightly amusing when you said we want an image of the server and they sent you a photo. But I can give you an example of that where I had a similar conversation with a customer. Actually, this is where they've moved on and they understood what imaging was and they were going to do some DFIR, except in this instance, they'd had an incident in their Office 365 cloud tenancy. And they said, can you send us an image of Office 365 so we can analyze it offline? I was like, we can't really send you an image of the cloud. It's not, it doesn't quite work like that. So great that you're asking the question and that you wanted the thing and you knew what you had to do, but also the fact that when you move into these new types of environments, the way that you perform these types of engagements changes. Now you've got different types of logs, different types of alerting, different mechanisms in place. So great you asked the question, but unfortunately it's a different way of doing things in a cloud-based environment. Before we close out the webinar, I just want to say, let's flip it around and just very quickly ask the question. Obviously, they're the horror stories that we can go away and learn from, but let's just talk about one example or two examples of where you've seen the whole machine working really well, like that Formula One team that comes in and all the wheels come off and the wheels go back on and they're out within two seconds flat. When are you seeing IR and cyber response capability really humming and singing? And again, start with you on this one, Frank. I've got a couple examples and I might just start by reverberating a point that Jess made around mergers and acquisitions because I think I've got a good and a bad example. We see a lot of M&A activity, particularly recently, and it's done at the business level and people really haven't accounted for IT to be merged into the organisation. And I've got examples of customers who do it really poorly and some who do it really well and actually build it into that. And this really talks back to their ability to sustain an incident response. In terms of medium good, We've had a customer who's quite mature, is very diligent in their incident response process and had some suspicion around some of their servers and they've kicked off a full incident response. They followed their IR plan, they've engaged their executives, they've told their customers, they've got their forensic image, they've got us involved and figured out they weren't breached. They've right. always done such a good job that the unfortunate thing, and this is why it's a medium good story, is that they've gone out and done the right thing with their customers, but then everyone's left with a question in the back of their mind because you see many of reports similar to this going out into the market saying, look, something's happening, we're investigating and turning around and saying nothing happened when nothing really did happen and they've done the right thing. So it's unfortunate by some of the people doing the medium wrong thing, but it's a good example of someone following the process and perhaps jumping the gun a little bit early. My best story recently is a customer in a similar situation who's followed their IR process to the letter of the law. Ransomware, unfortunate. They were doing the right things with the patch cycle and it was a perfect example of vulnerability exposed. The attackers were quick on it. It was a weekend and managed to ransomware the environment. And what was really exciting was their ability to follow the plan through, know who was involved, engage us. But I think the biggest boon was being able to restore from backup. And not just having backups, so they've gone after the vendor's environment and crypto lockered the backup solution, but mm -hmm. they actually had tape. I was amazed to hear that tape continues to grow at compounded annual growth rate of 7%, I think it is. But they've taken their tape backups, they've restored and managed to literally be operating after a long, hard weekend of success. Excellent. There was a point that you made before around the going out and going early and telling people that something is happening, even if that it turned out that it wasn't. I still think there's a little bit of a stigma around that ultimately about if you're saying you've got an incident, it's ultimately a bad thing. And therefore, people are really cautious about going straight out to market on it. I don't know how we move past that as an industry, but I think that's something we do have to get over and actually sharing the fact that something's happened to you and sharing what went right and what went wrong is key learning for everybody. And we've got to stop moving away from that whole cyber incident shaming more than anything. And then Jess, finally, yours, what's your good news story to end us oh. on a high? 
I'll, I'll give you a couple of good news stories. So one was a ransomware incident, which could have gone very, very horrifically wrong given the level of the victim. But actually, their CEO working with two other CEOs who were in the same sector, and this goes to your point around the learnings of sharing when there is an incident occurring, they were able to tip each other within that sector. And they also tipped the ACSC. And as a result, we could then get the precursor to that ransomware and then provided that out very quickly through our partnership program and actually prevented it on two other victims with or potential victims within the sector. So that was a great example going to your point, Mark, around not naming and shaming, actually being supportive of the sector to help Mm. others. So that was a really important example of sharing. The other one I refer to as the 72-hour eviction That was what they called the handling of their incident. This is a great example of leadership. This individual and this specific victim brought their leadership straight onto the phone with us and called a war room effectively. So they already had a very tight incident response plan and a disaster recovery plan, which they had exercised, including even exercising bringing backups because often we see people may have backups but haven't exercised bringing them back and then they can't bring them back. They handle it like a crisis and they actually managed it across not just tech. Again, they had their media folks in the war room. They assigned an actual crisis lead. So there were sashes with individuals who had specific roles in handling the incident, coloured hats, much like a fire. And what that did for the organisation is they knew how to handle a fire or an emergency and they treated it just like that. So you didn't have that fear of individuals thinking, I'm not tech. I don't know how to play my part in this. Actually, the CISO wasn't the lead on the incident. The CISO was able to just focus on the remediation. So it was a 72-hour eviction of the actor off their network and very well handled and very mature in that purely because of the leadership piece. But what I love about this example is they then did aftercare with the ACSC and their incident response company. So they then three months later said, right, what did we need to learn from that and what do we need to change? Because what I have noticed is there's nothing like an incident to inspire leadership to focus on cybersecurity. But after three or four months, that wanes. So this was a really good way to ensure it stayed within the board. And I like to describe that example as the perfect trifecta. The victim engaged incident response company early. The incident response company worked beautifully with the Australian Cybersecurity Centre and the victim. And when all three of those spokes are working really well, that gives huge level of assurance to the company and also then to the customer stakeholders in that instance. So that's a great example of it going well at a leadership level. That's an awesome example because what I really like about that one way we're talking about everyone with the different hats and sashes and so forth, it's clear that the cyber risk has been elevated from being the geeks again and up into a business risk problem where it's just as important as any other health and safety risk to the business. Without this, we could stop operating. We could stop being able to service our customers. We can no longer accomplish our mission. It's therefore as important as any other large-scale business crisis. So I really love that. And I also feel like I'm missing out because I don't have my own hat and sash either. Unfortunately, we are near time. So throughout today, I think we've discussed a whole raft of great areas. We started with a little bit of what are the trends and what's changed in the world of cyber incident response. We then talked a little bit about what are the foundations and building blocks of building out a capability and how do you look at maturing that? And then I just love the war stories of the good, bad and the ugly. Last closing question to both of you. If you had one piece of advice that you want somebody who's watching this today to take away, what would that one piece of advice be? Jess, you first. 
My one parting word of advice would be I warmly encourage you to report any cybersecurity incident or breach to the Australian Cybersecurity Centre. It's very easy to report the incident. You can contact us on 1300 Cyber 1 or you can go directly to our website on cyber.gov.au where you can report your incident. When you do call through, you will reach one of our 24-7 technical hotline officers who will provide you technical advice and guidance in order to help you recover and remediate much more quickly from your incident. The other piece is by telling the Australian Cybersecurity Centre of your incident, you may be helping us to help others prevent that breach from happening in the first instance or recover much more quickly. Awesome. Frank? I would say have a plan in place that's tested and have the tools deployed to have the visibility. Excellent. You've been listening to Decoding Security, a show about how to protect your business from the ever-changing threat of cybercrime. This podcast is brought to you by Microsoft Australia. Microsoft Australia provides a comprehensive suite of end-to-end security solutions unified across people, devices, apps, and data. For more information, visit the website microsoft.com forward slash decoding security. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Decoding Security, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Mark Anderson, and we'll be back next episode with more Decoding Security. Decoding Security.